Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Twice a week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're driving to work in the morning or cooking dinner at night, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Well, thanks for coming back, everybody, for another uh, podcast, Church Lessons podcast here in uh, 1 John, Epistles of John. We have made a lot of headway, and we're going to keep moving through it today. Uh, our last podcast, we talked about John's perspective of the Antichrist of that time, those false teachers that came out of his community, Johannine community, his congregation, and were teaching things from a Gnostic standpoint instead of uh, faith-based salvation standpoint, and we kind of detailed some of the differences there between what they were teaching and what we should believe. John now, in chapter 2, verse 29, leading into chapter 3, is going to pivot his discussion, and he's going to start talking about the idea of children of God and how do you identify these children of God. So, as we mentioned last time, chapter 2, verse 29 is really a transitional statement into chapter 3 and moving us into this new topic as we begin this uh, treatment uh, in detail of the relationship, the fundamental connection between knowing God and doing what is right. And John will address this, the two must go hand in hand, which we've already uh, considered to some degree, and that this will be the distinguishing mark for those who call themselves the children of God and those who call themselves the children of the devil, right? John's going to split those two. So let's take a look at it. Let's read through uh, the beginnings of chapter 3 and then kind of address some of the, uh, the words and the concepts as we go. So First John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. This is already a statement John is making in this transitional verse that truth originates from God. You must be born again, born of him, born of God, for truth to abide in you. And that's who John is talking about. He's been talking about Jesus Christ up till now, especially in the last section. But he pivots, and he doesn't say it clearly, but as we go forward, you're going to see him start using the language of the Father. So when he says, if you know that he is righteous, he's talking about God there, uh, not Jesus Christ, I think. Uh, and that if we're going to do what is right, we have to be born of God. And that is done through the person and the works and the salvation that we gain through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So John, in verse 3, my first word in my translation says, See what love, and that's really understated a little bit. My translation doesn't do uh, the Greek word there, justice. It's really a word that means, hey, look, see. It's, it's to grab people's attention. Uh, it implies that you need to contemplate what is getting ready to be said. And in this case, it's the love of the Father. 
think about the love of the Father and allow the truth of that to sink in and sink in deeply into the bones, if you will. Um, when we look at the love of the Father uh, and we see what it has done for us, it should take our breath away. It should be something that is just awesome and inspiring for us. Uh, it is a love that will do anything for us because we are children of God. Not because we deserve it, but because God is love. It is born of Him. And if we are born of Him, then we have that love inside of us as well. That's a neat thing that he's doing as he kind of shakes their attention. And he also goes on to say in that verse that the reason the world does not know us is because the world does not know God. Right? Remember the spiritual eyes concept from the last uh, podcast episode where people who do not have spiritual eyes struggle to read Scripture. Well, they also struggle to see God in everyday life. Um, there is a, a concept uh, in theology known as biblical theology. Um, many of you may be familiar with systematic theology, which is where we take a concept like who is God, and we look in the Scripture to find out the references to God to determine what the Bible says about God, and that is our theology. Right, that's systematic theology. Well, biblical theology is when you read the breadth of Scripture and you look for common themes and, what the, and then determine what those common themes say about our existence and our relationship with God. And that's part of what I think John is trying to say here is, is that one of the themes of Scripture is uh, this love of God is the most pure thing that we can participate in, and it is what determines or points us out as being children of God, but, but people who do not believe in God will not see that theme, right? They won't understand it because they don't have the ability to see God's love in the world nor administer it, uh, nor can they see it in Scripture. And so John points that out at the, at the end of that verse. And then in verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed what we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Uh, John opens up with the beloved concept, again reminding folks that they are a beloved community of John's, and he says, we are God's children now. We are already in the family of God. That is not part of that eternal hope that we're waiting for, the eternal hope that we look forward to, that we're waiting for, is the hope of recon full reconciliation, consummation of God's kingdom through the return of Jesus Christ. But we're in God's family now. We're going to become much more, he says. And what that will be, he's not sure. But what he does know is that we will be like him. We will be more like God we will see that through Jesus Christ, the Lamb, right? And, and, and we will become more pure like Him. So what is, what is John trying to wrestle with with his folks? He's, he's wrestling with, you need to be like Christ now as much as you can. There's more to come, but it is not something we wait for. The Gnostics are waiting for it. They do not behave like Christ now. They do not follow the ethical model that Christ gave us and how he dealt with people and creation uh, and relationships. They 
don't believe that that is part of this age. So they can behave however they want to. It is the coming age when they will behave more righteously. And John's going, wait a minute. That does not at all fit in with what Jesus showed us and taught us. Jesus taught us the kingdom is now. It is within our reach. That is, again, part of the great lesson of the Beatitudes is Jesus gives us the kingdom version of what all the teachings mean. And it seems so upside down to, to people then and to us today a lot of times. But that's because most of our standards are based on the world, worldly context, fleshly perspectives, and John is saying that's not at all what the kingdom is. And oh, by the way, the kingdom has already begun. The kingdom began when Jesus came down in the flesh. Wherever Jesus was, that's exactly where the kingdom was. His signs, his miracles, his good works, all were intended to point us to the kingdom and to God on the throne in that kingdom. Now, one day, that will all be pervasive throughout all reality and all existence. It's not now, but it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be the kingdom. So the things that we do for the people around us, the things that we say, the, the way that we interact, the lives that we live, we should be kingdom people now because we're already in the family of God. We just happen to be, a, as Paul would say, a dim image because we are marred by sin and, and, the, and the accumulation of the effects of sin. And this creation is also a dim image. It will one day be fully realized and clear to us, but live like it anyway now. Do not wait uh, for that to come. In verse 3, he says, And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And as I mentioned, purity apparently is one of the, the characteristics of Jesus, and it's one that we should begin to embrace now. Our hope to be like Christ in the future expresses itself now by our efforts to purify ourselves to be like him. And that word for purify in the Greek is hagnizo. And it is used in the New Testament and its, its companion word is used in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. And it could be a ceremonial purification like you would do if you were going to do a sacrifice or if you would purify yourself in, in a... Ceremonial bath before you went into worship. Priest would do this a lot. Uh, you can find those baths even today in the Holy Land from archaeological digs. Or it could be a moral purification. I think what John has in mind right here is clearly a moral purification so that, so that we would be more ethically pure in how we live our lives. We would seek to behave again just like Christ behaved if at all possible. That leads us to verse 4, and there's an interesting thing that John does beginning in verse 4, literarily speaking, in that he writes in a form of parallelism. And what I mean by that is, is that John is going to compare what is righteous against what is lawless by doing parallel passages. So as we read through it, I want you to pay attention to this because in verses 4, 5, and 6, we're going to get... Uh, some very uh, positive uh, uh, and negative statements about what it means to be um, uh, part of the family of faith versus not part of the family of faith. Again, lawless versus 
versus righteous. But then when you get to verse 7, you're going to have this transitional statement uh, that uh, John makes. And then verses 8 and 9, he's going to repeat what he said in 4, 5, and 6. And that's parallelism. And that's, a, again, a literary technique to reinforce a teaching. So let's read through it, and I want you to pay attention to this as we go. So again, 4, 5, and 6, we're going to hear four concepts for the first time. We'll transition in verse 7. And then 8 and 9, we're going to hear those same four concepts again. And we'll point back up as we get to them. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. That's his first point. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. His second point is that sin is lawlessness. The nature of sin is not being obedient to the law. And again, when we talk about law here, we're talking about the plan, the will, the commands that God gave us, and as an extension of that, that Jesus taught us when he was here on earth. All right, so verse 4 has two of those points. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of violating the law, and the nature of sin is violating the law. That word for sin in the Greek comes from an archery term that means to miss the mark. I think we talked about this in an earlier podcast in that it's not that you necessarily have to be turned fully away from God to sin. It may be that you just don't hit the target or you don't hit the bullseye on the target, right? But anytime we miss, then we have violated God's law, and that is sin. Much better word to use when we talk about our behavior than more moral terms like right and wrong. Right and wrong as concepts change based on culture. What is right today may have been wrong 30 years ago. What is wrong today may have been right 30 years ago, but sin never changes. Right? God's rules and standards uh, exist uh, through eternity. Verse 5, we're going to catch our third point that John's making here. Verse 5, you know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus was revealed to us to take away all of our sins. And then verse 6, the fourth point, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. So if you abide in Jesus, you do not sin. Remember how John treats sin now. Don't, let's don't lose sight of that. Uh, he has two different ways he uses sin. One is an abiding life of sin where we are intentionally living in it with no awareness. Um, that type of sin does not happen if we're abiding in Christ. We're aware when we are missing the mark, when we are missing the bullseye, and we pull ourselves back into the will and plan of God individual sins, those are going to happen. So John is saying here, not that we won't ever make a mistake. Of course we will. But if we abide in Jesus and, and we are accessing God through him, then we will not live that life of sin. However, those people that do, John says, they've never seen Jesus or known him, right? And, it, and, and that seen and known is a deep and abiding term. It's not a superficial term. Then we get to this transition statement uh, in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, 
just as he is righteous. And now he's going to go back and hit those terms again, beginning verse 8. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil. Compare that to verse 4. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Right? Lawlessness now is attached to the devil. The devil is the author of lawlessness. God is the author of righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 8, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning of time. So the origins of sin come from Satan. The origins of sin come from Satan. And that goes back to the second part of verse 4 when he says sin is lawlessness. Right? If, if you are violating the law in sinning, it's only because you're dwelling within Satan. Those are the connections that John is trying to, trying to draw for his audience here. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And remember in verse 5, it says he was revealed to take away all sin. Again, John drawing the parallel here and connecting that Jesus not only came to reveal sin and to take it away, but he also came to reveal and destroy the works of the devil, which are one and the same as John is describing them. So that's the third point that is paralleled. And then in verse 9, those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. And that is the final parallel. It, it parallels back to verse 6 that says no one who is in Christ can sin. In verse 9, it says, no one who has been born of God will sin. And again, that's that abiding life of sin that, that John is talking about. And then he goes on in verse 10. Well, so that wraps up our parallelism before we move on. A neat little literary technique that John has used to teach his people and make connections for them. Uh, and it's very typical of, of, of a first century writing style. Then in verse 10, it says, The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and their sisters. See how John is bringing in not only belief, doctrine, Right? That, that doctrine that we hold to be true, which is that um, if we do what, if we know what is right and we, and, and we do what is right, we're from God. If we do not, then we are not from God. But then he draws that into our ethical practices with each other. So not only do you have to do what is right that is given from God, but you also must love your brothers and then by extension your sisters. And I think John is not talking about just men here. He's talking about all of humankind. And so I like to use the phrase, uh, nor are those who do not love their brothers and their sisters. Uh, and it's a real interesting statement. Augustine of Hippo, uh, who was the bishop of Hippo Regis, modern-day Algeria, uh, in the 300s and the early 400s, said this uh, about that writing. It says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. But this scripture does not apply to males only. It is equally valid for females. Any woman who injured someone else must make amends as quickly as possible, and the injured sister must forgive without reserve. So uh, Augustine, even in the 
300 has already made that connection that John is not just talking about the brothers in the faith, but also the sisters. And you must love your brothers and your sisters to prove that you are born of God. And and part of that quote that um, as, I, as I read it a couple of times and included in today's podcast that stuck out to me uh, is, is not just the fact that it includes women, but it's that last piece is that if you, if you offend someone, if you somehow injure someone, injure them emotionally, cognitively, physically, whatever, you have to make amends quickly, but then they have to forgive you without reserve. Wow. Okay, so that's not my forte all the time because when people hurt me, my fleshly self is like, well, just because you ask forgiveness doesn't mean I have to forgive you, right? But that's not what probably God is teaching. And at least um, Augustine of Hippo says it very clearly. Once that person, and I would say add to that genuinely, seeks to make amends, then you have to genuinely forgive them. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. But when we do that, we are clearly demonstrating the love of God on both sides. We've made amends. We've sought them out when we harm them. And they've responded in like kind with this, un, this deep and, and at God's level, unconditional type love where We've put aside everything because of the genuineness of the act and because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not, again, what the Gnostics are teaching. They, they can hate people. And so as we, as we come to the end of this particular section, think about this. We've touched on this before with the Gnostic teaching. The biggest threat to Christianity today is not... It's not people who don't believe at all. It's not people who completely teach differently. They're not really the threat. Um, it, is not, um, it is not people who totally turn their backs on the faith. Those aren't the biggest threats to our faith. Those are obvious. The biggest threats to our faith today are the slight variances in doctrine, in belief that take us away from a salvation dependent on Jesus Christ. And the watering down, the dilution of the teachings in our everyday lives. If we aren't living exactly the doctrines that we are taught and we profess, that's the bigger threat to our faith. And quite honestly, when, when we allow the faith to be co-opted by culture, by politics, those kinds of things, uh, it, it, it inevitably always has, in my opinion, always will, water down our faith because you lose control over it. Uh, Jesus says this after uh, he teaches on the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, he tells the people that they are to be salt and light to the world, and he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? But you are the actual light of the world. Now, 
If you go to the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel today, at least where we think that's where Jesus did this teaching, and it, it's a great um, small hill that, that flows down and almost like um, um, uh, a bowl shape all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, uh, which would have been a great teaching spot. And so I think there's some validity to that could be the place. But if Jesus is sitting there teaching and he makes that statement that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, it lights, its light shines, then he's probably pointing to Tiberius. Uh, and Tiberius is a tourist city today, but back in the first century, it was a Roman stronghold. Um, it uh, is what was a seat of power for the Roman government and eventually becomes an educational and literary stronghold for Jews. Right? But Jesus maybe points to that or at least is looking at it when he says this, but then he turns around and says to the people, you are the light of the world. I don't think Jesus ever expects uh, significant change uh, and kingdom work to ever come out of, of institutions. No government institution, uh, no corporate institution, um, quite honestly, no civic institution, uh, no church as, as an entity can make substantial kingdom progress if the individuals within it aren't, right? Because the, the corporate nature of each of those is always going to be powerful and draw power and suck it out uh, of individuals. You know, your, own, your church, your community is only as strong as the individuals in it. Um, if you look at the history of civilizations, I think it's very fair to say that the strength and the quality of any civilization is reflective of the strength and the quality of the individuals and families within it. The family is the building block uh, for all good civilizations. And when the family wrestles, struggles, and crumbles, so does that civilization in many, many ways. So... You need to be salt and light and leaven as we are taught in Scripture so that you can reach out to a world that is decaying, that is dark, and that is flat, right? And you need to be the kingdom presence. And I think that's what John is trying to teach us here when he says that we need to abide in God. We, not the, not the community or the corporate, we as individuals will make the biggest difference in the kingdom to come today because we are now part of the family of God. And how will we do that? We're going to love one another. And we'll jump into that next time when we uh, start at uh, verse 11, and we'll see how far we can get to ending this chapter. Hopefully we'll finish it all so that we can keep progressing in the Word. Until then, remember, stay in the Word, read, read slowly, and study. Right, so that we can keep this journey going on together. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms and on YouTube for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com. We'll see you next time.